0: Welcome to this special Indigenous Voices edition of the Salton Light Hour. I'm Deacon Pedro. Early in 2022, we started Indigenous Voices, a mini-series within the Salt and Light Hour to help us get to listen to Indigenous people. As we speak with them and get to know their personal stories, we begin to learn about their culture, languages, beliefs, traditions, history, and spirituality. This, of course, is in the context of the journey towards healing and reconciliation, which received a huge boost this summer with the visit of Pope Francis to Canada. I have to point out, in case you're new to our show, that I am Catholic. I am an ordained permanent deacon in the Catholic Church and so I come at this with a particular worldview and with perhaps my own baggage. In order to achieve true reconciliation between the church and indigenous people, we both have to listen to each other, get to know each other and each other's traditions and beliefs, share those beliefs with each other and walk together alongside each other. For now, I'm doing my part. Today, we travel to Alberta and I am very pleased to share with you two very personal conversations with two people who have become dear friends over the last year, Deborah Lloyd and Gary Gagnon. I'm Deacon Pedro, and welcome to our fifth episode of this Salt and Light Hour special series, Indigenous Voices. Deborah Lloyd is from the Saddle Lake Cree Nation, northeast of Edmonton in southern Alberta. She is an educator specializing in indigenous culture. She was a teacher for 30 years, but I think I can say that she's been teaching almost for as long as I've been alive, and she is also an expert in the field of addictions. Deborah worked with me on the organizing committee for the Papal Visit, and I am proud to be able to call her
1: Auntie Debbie. Hi, I'm Deborah Lloyd and I have uh spent most of my life in the field of addiction. I've been sober for almost 47 years, I think it is, and uh, I, I started my life as, a, as an alcoholic young. I didn't drink very long. I was only uh, involved in the whole drinking process for about a year and a half, but I went at it hard and strong, and I knew uh, the path that a lot of my people had been on. So I recognized very early in my drinking that I was uh, headed down the wrong path and I didn't want that path in my life. So I decided that I would uh, change my life and I relied a lot on God for that change process. I joined Alcoholics Anonymous and uh, decided that I needed to work exclusively with uh, fellow alcoholics and uh, affecting change in that way, I decided that in order to be effective in in any kind of work that I wanted to do, I needed to get more education so after I'd been sober for a number of years, I went back in, uh, into university and got a degree in education with a specialization in indigenous culture in uh, psychology, and social studies. Okay, so can, I, are areas.
0: can I interrupt? I'm so sorry to interrupt you because, and you and I have had this conversation before, Auntie Debbie, and I'm always so, so you've said a few things. You, you said that you started drinking at a very young age. You didn't drink for very long, a year and a bit, but you knew right away that this was a problem because you went at it really hard. Can you tell us a little bit more about what, how you ended up in that situation that you were drinking at such a young age? and going at it so hard?
1: Well, I started drinking when I was about 17. Uh, I left home when I was 17 to go and get a job so that I could help my parents. Um, I sent money home all the time, but it was a a freedom that I had never ever had before. And it was, I didn't know how to handle it. I was away from home. Uh, I was working at a job waitressing I was working from six in the morning till two in the afternoon and then I got in with the wrong crowd and started partying after work and then I found myself that I was you know I'd worked from six until two and then I'd Go partying party at the rest of- and, and go to work, <laughs> party all night and go to work at 5.30 in the morning. And it was a, it was a, a, an intense life that I couldn't keep up.
2: Yeah.
0: And was drinking, mm-hmm. had drinking been part of the, the family experience that that was a normal thing that made sense to you? Or was that yeah, something-
1: not, uh, not really in the no? sense that my father had sobered up when I was eight years old. He was an okay. alcoholic. He was an alcoholic and he sobered up when I was eight years old. So I really did not see a lot of drinking around home. But did you grow up? Did you grow up hearing that story?
0: My- did you grow up hearing about that story about your dad having sobered up? Oh, or is-
1: definitely. Yeah. yeah so definitely.
0: that was part of the culture. So when so, you.
1: Yeah. My dad was an AA. So, so I heard, I heard all the drunk logs of all his friends yeah. for many years. So. So I knew, I knew the path that, and the progression based on the stories of the old alcoholics that would come and visit my dad and help him stay sober, right. if I went to, went to an AA roundup or went to uh, uh, got caught in a meeting, because uh, there was no babysitter kind of thing. Uh, then I was listening to this stuff all the time right so so right. I knew I knew the path of the alcoholic so basically when I started drinking I was educated and uh, I knew the progression so I could see that progressing very quickly right me. yeah so uh, and I knew that I had this one little auntie who was a, a really bad alcoholic and at one point someone said to me Deb you're getting just like aunt martha And that was a showstopper for me. I did not want to end up like Aunt Martha, who ended up dying in skids in Vancouver. So that was a wake-up call for me. And uh, I knew that I didn't want that life. So I spent the next probably five or six months chasing my tail around Canada, trying to get rid of that moniker and trying to uh tell myself that i didn't have a problem yeah we call it a geographical cure in in uh, recovery circle so you're going to go from place to place to place trying to to prove to yourself that you don't have a drinking problem
0: right and that shows that and you end up finding that you do have a drinking problem problem because it doesn't matter where you are you're still the same person dealing with the same yeah
2: (laughs)
1: that's it and of course, with my with my indigenous uh, nature of being, you know, a traveler <laughs> going yes. from place to place, is and I see that happening a lot even today with a lot of my indigenous friends. You know, it's easier to pick up and run and go to the next place than it is to face those demons that are telling us that we've got a problem.
0: Yeah, Auntie, can can we just take a little pause and go back a, a bit? Tell us a little bit about your indigenous background where you grew up what first nations you belong to um for our listeners to get to know a little a little bit more about you
1: my band is the satellite cree nation which is north and east of edmonton but when my mother married my father who was not a member of the band he was metis so when she married dad she had to leave the reserve she was no longer welcome on the reserve because that's the way the laws were at that time but my mother was a residential school survivor so she really did not want her children to be in the position to be scooped up and taken to residential school so um, we did not have anything to do with the reserve we did not we barely visited the reserve uh my parents got jobs in uh mountain towns where they were uh working in coal mines and that sort of thing so that there was a really we were not brought up in Indigenous culture. In fact, my mother did everything she could to eliminate Indigenous culture from our lives because she did not want uh, us to be um, taken away. In fact, I remember many, many times uh, the threat of being taken away was there and we uh, would, you know, move farther into the mountains or we would move, you know, into, but we ended up in a, in a Scandinavian community, which was... Uh, really? Yes, yeah, because my father was a, a war veteran, and they were uh, given the opportunity by the DVA, the Department of Veterans Affairs, to work a piece of land and homestead it and eventually get title to that land. And so the place where he chose was a Scandinavian community. And there were lots of uh, Danish people and Icelandic and and uh, right. Dutch and you know in that community. So we grew up in that community. We were the only native family in the school we were in.
0: Oh, interesting, so. interesting. And just to clarify, so did you did you say that had you stayed in the reserve, or you would have remained having status? That would have meant that you would have had to go to residential school because all status yeah. children yeah. would have had to go to residential school.
1: Yeah. And uh, during my childhood, yes, yes that, would have
0: that would have been the case. Okay. So the fact that you, that your mother chose to, to forego her status when she married your dad. And she didn't
1: choose to forego her status.
0: She didn't have to.
1: taken away. Okay. But we still did not live close to the, to that community. Because there is so much scrutiny. Anywhere there's a reserve, there's scrutiny. Right. Uh, by the, by the dominant society as to how these children are being brought up
0: okay i see
1: so uh they were very highly scrutinized on 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 things that meant nothing to our culture right so and
0: and when you had
1: to protect us by getting us out of those situations that's my that's my thinking now based on information back then we were just following the job wherever dad
0: Right, and when when you were growing up in that when you were growing up in that Scandinavian community, being the 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 only brown brown girl in in the classroom full of blonde Scandinavians, um, how was that? Did were you treated differently? Did they see you as different, or did you feel oh, like no. you belonged? No,
1: very few, very very few children in that community. Uh, there was there were small amounts of of discrimination, but there were, it was more bullying than, than discrimination. Right.
0: The, yeah. More normal children yeah, bullying. Yeah. yeah. So um, then, so then you went, you finally at age 18, 19, you decide to go to, go to, to school. You get a degree in education, uh, special hey, that,
1: nice. that would have been nice, but no, no, <laughs> no, it didn't happen that, that, nice. that soon. <laughs> That's not how it happened. <laughs> I, I, <laughs> i went on my little geographical cure right medicine hat and that's where i sobered up and it was after being sober for a number of years okay that i decided to go back to university so i didn't graduate university so i was old.
0: wow and did you specifically decide thinking that you would get an education degree so that you could help your people especially in the area of addictions or is that something that came later
1: it came later. It came later. My goal was to get a degree and be employable. Okay. <clears throat> that was what I wanted to do. And uh, initially, I thought I'd go into social work, but okay. I figured I failed at social drinking. So maybe social work <laughs> might not be the path to go on. <laughs> so, and I, I knew early on that I was an educator. And right. so I wanted to go into education.
0: So you were a teacher for how many years? 30 years, 30 years. And I
1: started working in the school system before I graduated from university. So, uh, it was, um, I guess four or five years before that I actually started working in in the school system as a teacher assistant and then carried on.
0: Right. And then, but eventually you did become a bit of an expert and teacher in specific indigenous
3: culture
1: yes i went into i guess you could say um i specialized in, in indigenous education and so i took a lot of courses in the university and as i was taking those courses i decided that i needed to get more in touch with my culture i had done some connecting prior to university when i first sobered up and so it became more important to me as I continued on through my education it became more important to me that I connect with my culture.
0: Had you, had you found that it was important to connect with your culture in order to help you sober up?
1: No, 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 no not at all. Um, it wasn't even a thing for me because I had no idea what my culture was. Okay. But I just knew I needed to, I needed to sober up. So, uh, As I grew through my sobriety, I met many members of Alcoholics Anonymous that were Indigenous. And those people really, really helped me to connect more with my culture.
0: Right. You did say, though, that uh, your faith helped you a bit. Were you because you were brought up as a Christian, right? Yes. Yes. So where were you with your faith at around this time?
1: Uh, my faith has always been a part of my life well, the biggest part of my life my my connection with with creator with God uh, through the Holy Trinity has always been a huge part of my life so those it contributed to my early sobriety because I knew that I was not walking what we call the good Red road.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: I learned later that um, the good red road is the path that we take some people call it the straight and narrow some people call it uh, following jesus some people call it whatever they want to call it but for me now it resonates as following the good red road so that uh, we know that we are uh, connected with the great creator of all things that that is the most important thing in our lives is to connect with creator so each day you start your day with a prayer. You start your day with uh, an understanding of where you stand on that good red road. Am I falling off the side? Am I am I uh, staying mm-hmm. on the path? Am I carrying the message of and, uh, good hope for the people?
0: And now, do you see yourself more? I mean, a Christian or an indigenous spirituality? Do you, do you see that those two are are
1: no well together?
0: There's no separation.
1: There's no separation. There's no separation. Uh, it's a it's a it's a Western European concept to cause that separation. It's the difference between linear thought versus circular thought, which is a whole nother conversation. Yes. Pedro, we could go into, but uh, I mean, that is, that is what I teach now. Uh, I teach uh, linear thought versus circular thought and reconciling with the circle and reconciling with balance in our lives. <clears throat> and those yeah. are the most important things now.
0: Yeah. It's interesting because I think you could argue that that concept of circular thought belongs in Christianity as well. It's just that it's not really taught. We don't really understand it the way indigenous people understand it.
1: Exactly. Uh, to us as indigenous, indigenous people for me as an indigenous woman, it's inherent. It's something mm-hmm. that I was born with, but could never recognize. And so I also had that feeling of being set apart um, that, that, uh, that, that, feeling of anxious apartness is is what I feel creates that addiction.
2: Mm
1: -hmm. So we go down right down to the basics and just bore down and get to the basics. And it's that feeling of anxious apartness that that begins that whole path of seeking something that will give us that immediate gratification. I found early that immediate gratification rests in the Great Creator of all things. So I was very, very fortunate uh, to recognize that at a young age.
0: Is there something about because we hear we hear so much about how addictions are are such a such a problem, much more so among First Nations uh, communities. Um, is there something cultural or maybe even Uh, biological that makes Indigenous people more susceptible to the addictions or is it is it all just that trauma the intergenerational trauma that has been passed down
1: I think it's a combination of many of those things and like I say that the question your questions are based on a lot on linear thought because that is that's the nature of the world today is to project in that linear construct so so When you look at the question that you just asked me, there are so many parts that you can draw into your circle and, and put into your circle so that you can process those things in a, in a more gentle, more reconciling fashion. So you take, you take the trauma, you take the cultural piece, you take the education piece, you take Uh, the addiction speech, all of those things you have to bring into your circle and and, and allow them to resonate within your heart and and help you on that healing path. There's no one thing that is the cause of the addiction. I feel that when when we're set into this world of linear thought as Indigenous people, that feeling of anxious apartness, is there from a very early age. Because I think about uh, where my problems really were memorable for me. And that's when I began in an education system that was based on linear constructs.
0: Interesting.
1: So you look at just the very physical structure of a school. Mm -hmm. There is not very many examples of circular thought in a square classroom with square desks that are set in rows that are yep. based on on uh, achievement that are based on competition that are based on all of these linear constructs. When you look mm-hmm. at even how we learn to read, you're reading from left to right. Yep. You're adding up and down. You're at everything is a linear construct. So when you go into that that process as a circular thinker you have that anxious apartment. This is why so many of our students end up in special education because they cannot uh, do the from from circular thought to linear thought when the person that's teaching them is a linear thinker.
0: Interesting. So as an educator, how quickly did you figure that one out so that you could help your students?
1: It took me a while. I had, to, I had to study circular thought. And because I was fairly young in that process, because universities and post-secondary education uh, places were not well-versed in, in the process of Indigenous thought, it was very difficult because I was kind of developing these ideas as I moved along. So I did a lot of work with, developing teachers i did a lot of work with developing governments i did all through my career i i piped off about how all of this was so important to our people and now people are starting like non-indigenous people are starting to understand that there are differences in indigenous ways of learning versus uh, absolutely
0: the absolutely so, and i think we can all benefit from learning in 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 different ways um, we're almost out of time, Auntie, and I don't want to leave you without asking you about your summer, this past summer. And oh, I know yeah. we, don't, we don't have a ton of time, but maybe in, in, like, what are the highlights right now that you've had some time to reflect? Um, Auntie Debbie, you worked on on, on, uh, on helping organize the papal visit. Um, how do you feel now, three months later? Three months
1: later, I feel yeah. I feel like it was such a wonderful gift that was given to me to be able to work on this papal visit, to be able to get right into the meat of things in terms of where the Catholics are sitting on the subject. And to know that the Holy Father wanted to come here and begin the process, and I emphasize, begin the process of reconciliation from the Catholic Church's perspective. Mm -hmm. So it was really great for me to see the commitment, not only of the Holy Father, but also of the uh, Catholic people that surrounded him as we went through this walk down this path to begin a process that has only just begun. Mm -hmm. And now we need to look at, as we termed it, as we're working through it, the Pope is here for five days. What are we doing on day six? So this day six stuff is going to last at, for generations, and we're, we have to be committed to continue working on that. Uh, the Pope hasn't called me lately, so I'm not going <laughs> to that on it. Well but I know that as 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 Catholic people we are gonna continue because I've had several conversations with
0: absolutely yeah and maybe that shift of thinking from linear to circular needs to permeate in the church as well so yeah. that we can start approaching some of these topics uh, yeah. from a different perspective. Oh, yeah.
1: We've been so colonized, all of us.
0: Yeah, all yeah. of yeah, it's true, all the of us. The
1: process of colonization is not just an indigenous concept.
0: No, no, Auntie Debbie, thank you so much for spending a little bit of time. We could spend so much more time talking to you and maybe we will bring you back and we can, we can talk about some other things, but thank you so much for all the work that you've done over the last years, over all that I was going to say the last 40 plus years and, uh, and for sharing a little bit of, of, uh, of it with us today. Thank you. I do hope we can bring Auntie Debbie back to talk to us. It was a gift to be able to work with Deborah Lloyd, and I am proud to be able to call her Auntie. You may have missed a few things during our conversation. The first is that Auntie Debbie is not Catholic. She is a Christian, but not Catholic. You may also have missed what she means by what she calls anxious apartness. I didn't want to interrupt her, but after we stopped recording, we spoke about it a bit more. I can't say that I completely understand the concept of anxious apartness, except that I think that anyone who's experienced a traumatic separation, whether it's divorce or leaving home, refugees, can maybe have a sense of what she means. For indigenous people, because of colonization, and in particular in Canada, because of the residential school system, this is their normal state. And it's in that feeling of anxious apartness where the desire for instant gratification arises, and that leads to addictions. I am also intrigued by what Auntie Debbie said about the difference between our linear thinking and indigenous circular thought. This is something that I would love to get back to one day, maybe an excuse to bring Auntie Debbie back on the show. Gary Gagnon has a similar story to Auntie Debbie. He is also an educator, although Gary did start out as a social worker. Gary is also in recovery. He comes from a long line of Alberta Métis from St. Albert, just outside of Edmonton. Even though he wasn't in the Papal Visit Planning Committee, he was very much involved in the organization of many of the events.
3: My name is Gary Gagnon, I'm from uh, St. Albert, Alberta. I identify as a Métis person. Uh, I grew up in this uh, little prairie town, which is just north of Edmonton. And it's like a little suburb, but it used to be uh, the, the capital of Alberta for the, for the Métis at one time. And, and it was a very old settlement. And I, I guess you could say, you know, I'm I'm part of an old family that comes from this area here in St. Albert. So that's who I am. That's where I'm located. That's how I identify.
0: Um, uh, we we have spoken to other Métis people in this program before. And uh, I think that our listeners maybe have a little un- understanding of what that means. But in your words... Um, how would you describe what uh, what it means to be Métis?
3: Well, I, I think being Métis is uh, is to recognize that uh, we're from a very much a, a European world and very much from an Indigenous world. Okay. And and I I think when those two came together, sometimes you know as history was would dictate, you know, we were not often accepted as true blooded. Indigenous people, and we were not mm. always accepted as true-blooded Europeans. So, you know, the the Métis grew out of that, uh, out of those definitions, and became right. who they are today. To the point where we are recognized in the the Constitution as indigenous, as people. indigenous yeah. people. Yeah, with uh, with rights and, and and hereditary rights. Right. So oh. you know, but it, it kind of grew out of the fur trade as they would say mm-hmm. and whatnot. But uh you know, I, I know who I am here today. I know who I am in front of you. Yes. Uh, I know my history here, I know my family's history, and um uh, I can honestly say that you know I was born into an indigenous family and I I can never change that. So when I, you
0: when you were growing up in St. Albert, did you like, was it you were Métis, your family is Métis, you, like that was you grew up with that cultural heritage?
3: Yeah, I, I realized long ago how important that that was. Mm-hmm. And but often, you know, in a in a in a place like St. Albert that has become very much uh, kind of a rich suburb to Edmonton. OK, there's not many of our Métis families left in this area because we just can't afford to stay here. still so. <laughs> Yeah. but nonetheless um you know we were the forgotten people but as my grandmother late grandmother would say we're forgotten maybe but we will never forget right as a family so right
0: um tell me a little bit about growing up was it a a, a fairly large metis community or were you sort of integrated with other non-indigenous people in in saint albert
3: well i think we were very much uh, integrated with non-Indigenous people. I mean, we couldn't stop the, uh, them from coming or owning land here mm. to the point, you know, where it, how it grew today is is immense. Mm. Um, but the thing about saying that is that, um, I guess it, you growing up here it was to recognize that we were really special people. Okay. <laughs> and, and, and knowing that we were very active in the community, so everything from building the community to uh, Catholic church mm-hmm. and gatherings, uh, attending, honoring that, um, we were very much people that were of the land and, you know, and whatnot, so, yeah, uh I don't know, Pedro. It's it's interesting when you when you look back and you think. Yeah, I know. You know, could things have been different? What would happen if we had maintained all our families here?
0: Yeah, it's hard to tell. I know. I'm just uh, just curious to know what it was was like um, growing okay. up. But since you brought it up, so um, obviously you grew up in a Catholic family. You're you're Catholic today, um, and I think that there is a a part of the Métis heritage that is Catholic. Tell me a little bit about that
3: well we were we always knew we were Catholic, but we had, the metis were a strong Catholic in this area. Mm-hmm. I mean, we were the first mission i guess they they say west of uh, Red River or Winnipeg area mm-hmm. way back in the mid uh, i guess mid eighteen hundreds i think eighteen forty four there was a mission at laxina and right our, at uh Monte or God's Lake uh-huh. which is uh, just kind of west of here, about forty-five minutes. Um, there was an Oblate mission there, uh-huh. and Saint Albert had a lot of Métis people, and they were without a, a priest.
2: Uh-huh.
3: And they went and petitioned at Lac saint Anne, where there was, you know, families were connected in that settlement to the Saint Albert settlement, and we wanted a Catholic priest. So they went and got one, and Father Albert Lacombe was the one that came. And that was around the time of the rebellion. you you got to remember that was just after 1885. I shouldn't say rebellion, maybe it should be resistance. The Louis Riel one. Resistance, yeah, in 1885 in Batash. Right. And we even took up arms here.
0: Oh, yeah.
3: And where they took up arms was to protect the church. Interesting. You know, they that was a vital heartbeat because that it was, was like part prayer. of, that, yeah.
0: So that was integral to the community. It sounds like yeah. it sounds like you grew up. I mean, obviously, you weren't alive during that rebellion, but it sounds like you grew up knowing that history, knowing your heritage, uh, uh, maybe proud even to be Métis and proud Catholic. Um, did you ever struggle with kind of what it meant to be Indigenous as an adolescent or as an as a young man, and and making sort of that. Makes sense.
3: Oh my goodness, yes. Because you know, uh, Pedro. Of course, we we're all on a journey of some kind, and I always knew we were indigenous, mm-hmm. our family. But being baptized and receiving some of the sacraments early on in life, as like a lot of good Catholic people have gotten, mm-hmm. um, it, it just felt something was missing. And, and I couldn't figure it out for the life of me, and and I, and I knew we, we enjoyed being on the land, we, we harvest berries, you know, dad would take us hunting, uh, we would, we just enjoyed that, but not really putting a finger on it and saying, you know, that was very much uh, the spirit of who we were as indigenous people. Okay. Because, you know, we just honored the church. And, you know, but my grandmother had the language and my mom and dad kind of refused to talk the language. So we kind of, I kind of lost that language. Okay. What, Just sorry, what, la-
0: what language did your grandmother speak? Cree. Okay. So, so they we, spoke. We didn't,
3: we didn't speak the machip language midship, here. but no, she spoke right. Cree. Okay. You spoke Cree or you spoke French or you knew a little bit of French or mm-hmm. you spoke English. So growing up, you know, there was part of me that was missing something. And then I got into trouble as a teenager. My, my road led to an old man that knew my late grandfather. They, they were in the army together and my dad took me to him. And I spent time with this elder and his name was uh, Ed Belrose and he was from Driftpile First Nations, which is just west of uh, mm-hmm. Slave Lake. And uh, it was him that really turned me around. And he said, you know, you have to acknowledge your indigenous side. Yeah. And acknowledge, and he used the word white. He said acknowledge the white side of you too. He said, go to church if you wish, but also go and learn about your culture, your language. Yeah. He said, feel comfortable in that journey. That's going to become Mm -hmm. part of you. And today I'm, I'm at the point where, you know, I'm very much enculturated. Yeah, you are. And and I and I and I so love that. Yeah. I, I don't fight it anymore. I don't need to prove anything to anybody. I know my family doesn't need to prove anything to anybody. Yeah. Are who we are, whether we go to church or to an indigenous ceremony.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: The the underlying thing that, you know, my grandparents taught us was just to have a good relationship with God. Right. So, however we do that, I can't see how it harms us. Mm -hmm. It can only strengthen us. Yeah, you know, and I think that's where I'm kind of at today. Yeah.
0: And today, you you mentioned you're an educate educator, but how old were you when you decided I'm going to make a difference in the life of other kids?
3: Well, you know, I had an expulsion from the school district here. (laughs) I won't tell that story. So I ended up having to go to Edmonton because the school districts around here in St. Albert wouldn't take me. How old were you? When the expulsion happened? Yeah. Oh, I don't know, about 16.
0: 16, yeah.
3: But I was already like uh, in some trouble. Okay. And and that's outside of school. And of course it accumulated one night and I did something, you know, I regret. And uh, Mm. so the expulsion happened in, and even my mom was working for the school district at that time and oh, yeah. she was the, she was the assistant to the superintendents as a as an administrator like a, a secretary mm. and i just totally embarrassed her and my family and and i knew i needed help and that's how i got to that old man when i was about 19 years old mm. and then i kind of he said you got to do something so i went and applied for the army oh and I was accepted into officer college. And like, you know, I, I my marks are good. And so I ended up doing uh, like, I, I guess, all the requirements, the mission requirements. And the final one I had to go do was a medical. And they found out I had a heart murmur. And they felt, and I was not accepted. Because they felt maybe under extreme duress, I would faint and i jeopardize myself and everybody around me. And so that was kind of a, a hit,
2: mm-hmm.
3: then I tried to, for the Edmonton City Police and and same thing, they, you know, right away they, I said I had a heart murmur and they said, well, I don't know if you wanna go further in your application, it'll, it's just gonna be denied. So of course, you know, there was two heart breaks there because, you know, I always wanted to defend people and I wanted to, mm-hmm. to do right that way. And so for about a year, I just took any job I could. And I'm in recovery at that time, being 19, and I was in just recovery. First,
0: sorry, recovery uh, for for alcohol: for,
3: No, just for oh. an addiction.: Okay, and which you know I'm not going to get into it here. okay. but just know that I'm in recovery mm-hmm. and for the last 37 years, so mm-hmm. but anyway, um yeah, so I was 19, and I, I just couldn't I, I just didn't I was just spinning my wheels. And finally, you know, about a year and a half later, I was pretty stable in my recovery as a young person. And I mean, 37 years ago, there wasn't too many people that were in recovery around here that were my age.
2: Mm
3: -hmm. And it finally dawned on me, I should just go to university.
2: Hmm.
3: So I went and talked to the old man, you know, Ed, Eddie. And he said, yeah, let's do it. He said, but you don't go to school here in Alberta. You you go outside the province. <laughs> oh, pardon me. He said, you know, you know too many people here and you're gonna get in trouble. Hmm. And you're not gonna study and you're not gonna, you know. So he, he drove me to Regina. Yeah. Wow. The U of R, we had a road trip together. And for social work, you had to do an interview. Uh-huh. to get it as a requirement so i i got him i got into the u of r as a social worker and, and just kind of went from there and mm-hmm. came back with a piece of paper that said i could do all kinds of little social work things and whatnot so
0: those were wise words from that elder um and now <laughs> now it's funny because now you're i'm not going to say you're old but you now you're the elder Thanks. Now you're the elder giving that kind of advice know, to young
3: I'm, I'm not an elder. People want to say that sometimes. and, and I just always, But you are.
0: For a lot of the young people that you work with in schools, you are an elder.
3: Well, I always tell them I'm just a helper. You know, uh-huh. I, um, I I think when we met in Cornwall, Ontario, I, I shared that with you in a sense that, you know, there was a scripture reading from that one night there. It said, oh, it says, it's not so much to be served as to serve. Yes. And I've always been of service. I always believe in helping and I've always paid it forward. For what I got today, I paid forward.
0: Yes, you you have and, been.
3: And, and and I don't want to stop because so, Tell us I'm little, in
0: Yeah, um tell us a little bit about the work that you do in the schools in in the Edmonton.
3: Well, I'm very much uh uh a person that will infuse the indigenous culture and Catholic or catechesis teachings mm-hmm. so I work in the religious ed classrooms or with this with the teachers mm-hmm. especially when it comes to indigenous spirituality or whatnot and you know so I'm a big promoter of uh, of that mm-hmm. and you know so the use of uh, like for example sweet grass in the school or You know, for our indigenous students, um, and then I would compare it to the like the church and the thurible and the incense that they use, and that the two are very much the same thing. Mm -hmm. The only thing is about the thurible and the incense incense or in church as an example is that we were never taught that. Right. We were not we were never taught what that really was or why they did what they did. But in regards to our way of blessing ourselves and with the, the smoke and that I mean you know that was ingrained in us as really young mm-hmm. we saw our people do it and we understood it so when we were not explained that in church you know there was a bit of a mystery there right so when, when I started to learn about it then I could teach it
2: mm-hmm.
3: and I could teach the comparisons so because I work in a Catholic school district that's kind of like the path I took. But I did break into the school district as a social worker.
0: Right. Yeah. So now
3: it's kind of morphed into something else.
0: Yeah. Gary, um, we're I don't wanna leave you because we're we're almost out of time, but I don't want to leave you oh. with talking about the Pope because I mean you're in Edmonton, obviously, so you were in the in the middle of everything, but you were also part of the delegation that traveled to Rome in March at the end of March and and then you were involved in a lot of the papal visits uh events how are you feeling about that now it's been three months have you had a chance to reflect or are you still a little kind of deer in the headlights (laughs) how do you feel now Well,
3: there's no deer in the headlights I I think it was an opportunity to tell the Métis story
2: Mm -hmm.
3: which was not told through the TRC very much because to the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. Yeah, the Truth yep. and Reconciliation Commission, Truth and Reconciliation Commission. Yes, because in that there was a federal document, and a lot of the Métis that attended these schools in the province were provincially funded, so they were. There was a little bit said, but not a lot. But I knew that if we went, we could tell that story
0: to the Pope. But, you mean to the Pope?
3: Yes. to the Holy Father not knowing uh, you know, the, uh, the reward that it would bring us, and that would be him coming to a very historic Métis site in July, a place that we've been gathering as indigenous people long before the mission at a very sacred place, which is now called but before it was god's lake
0: yeah and you already mentioned that how important that place was for the metis people
3: yeah um, that were
0: in alberta way before yeah
3: yeah and 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 i think you know just going to tell our story was really hard and you know i was a bit of a mess seeing the holy father because i I realized who i was in front of Mm. And I realized when that door opened and it was my turn to walk through, I could just feel all the prayers of everyone. And, I, and it weakened me because I just realized that those prayers accumulated to that moment when I went in because I did go to a lot of elders in, in the First Nations community and the Métis elders and asked them for prayers for this trip to be successful. And, 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 I, and I felt that. And I wasn't as strong as I thought maybe I would have been. And, you know, I, I just, I could just feel spirit. Yeah. And and I was grateful because I think, you know, the Métis, we did go first and it was yep. a powerful moment. And we got to tell our story and we got to share that with the world. That story.
0: Did you speak with him directly? Did you say anything to the Pope directly?
3: I kind of did, but I was kind of emotional about it. And you know, I kind of fumbled. Yeah. I couldn't get my name out to him when I first <laughs> kicked his hand. But, you know, I knew that he listened to us. Mm-hmm. I know he has a good command of the English language. There was mm-hmm. only a few times he turned to his interpreter to ask for clarification on a word. Mm-hmm. But in the end, we gave him a gift. We presented a, a, a Métis sash stall. Did I say that right?
0: A stall, yeah. The
3: Métis stole. sash stall, yeah. And um, he put it on right away. And mm-hmm. then I explained the sash to him, the importance of it. And I, and I kind of grabbed the, the edges of it like this. And I, and I said to him, uh, when you come to Canada, and if you do, make sure you bring it. And he brought it to Anne And he wore it for us, for all of us to see.
0: Yeah, and people can watch all fact- those all that footage and all those photos. And there he is sitting at, at the Shrine of Lac and wearing the stole that you gave him. Um, tell our listeners the the symbolism of the sash. The, the Well,
3: weave. yeah, the weaver, you know, the Métis are many colors, we say. You know, white, we can, you know, many colors. Many different communities we come from in the world. So that represents us, those colors. But when woven together that represents the community. Mm-hmm. The length of it is our nation, they say. One thread can be easily broken and, and, and you can do that. You can take on the fringe of a, a sash, you can just take one thread and pull it right apart, easy. But the significance of that when woven together is that you can't break it. Mm-hmm. So we were to be forever. And you know that's why you see that infinity sign has a representation of the Métis as a forever people
0: right and some some of our listeners might not know that that is the symbol of the metis people the infinity sign so it looks like a looks like a, an eight the number eight on its side right yeah yeah it, so it, it symbolizes sorry the, that your people sorry what is For, the symbol forever people are forever people yes
3: yeah and actually you know those two circles in the infinity sign represents the two worlds we come from mm. so the indigenous world and the. Uh, european world so but me just to go back to meeting the holy father i mean as a catholic person i guess there's no greater person that you could meet Mm. here on earth is is the holy father he is the vicar general to jesus and you know that wasn't lost on me because i grew up knowing you know my teachings from the catholic church but as an indigenous person Knowing that some of my own family were part of the day school uh, situation and whatnot, that was hard to, to kind of get that story out. Um, you know, it was it was a little tough. Mm-hmm. So, but yeah, I, I mean, we got him here, the Indigenous people, I truly know the Indigenous people, it, we were the one that brought him here to Canada. He came for us. Mm-hmm. And he honored the call to action number 58 and that was to come to canada apologize on the land to to the inuit to the first nations and to the metis and he did he took that on his shoulders he acknowledged a lot and and i think you know if you're if you're a person that understands healing or that are that you know you could be on that journey of healing i mean there there couldn't have been any greater moment to add to your healing than than those moments that he had spoken places that he attended and the things that he shared and you know pedro you were part of you were a great part of that as well and you were had the inside workings too my friend mhm you know, we only had four months to try and get this thing <laughs> off the ground. Yeah. You know, other people have two years to get it going. Yes. Yes. So, you know, that was uh, quite a you know, quite a huge task undertaking.
0: Yeah. And I, we did it. Well, we did it together. We did it together.
3: did it. And we made good friendships yes, through that. We did, we did met a lot of nice people. Yes. And, and a lot of nice non-Indigenous people that were really walking with us yeah and I, I do want to mention that because reconciliation is about you know honoring the hand that is outstretched to you and you outstretch your hands to greet that hand
0: yeah exactly it goes when together you take hands those
3: two hands are together right right within that connection you know the old people will say that's where good intent resides good intent is the coming of two hands
2: mm-hmm.
3: good intentions trust caring love you know all those values are into that friendship at yeah. that point
0: i think you know had the pope not come we wouldn't be friends so thank the pope
3: well i do thank the pope i, I thank him for because he came to Laxey, and we also got the upgrades that we needed for that place <laughs> <laughs> and he got to wear your I, sash and he got to wear the sash that audrey Patras. yes that, the leader of the Métis Nation of Alberta, just a great leader, a wonderful woman, and you know, um, we got that made, and he honored that, and he honored us as Métis people. Yes. And and I, when I saw, when I saw that he was putting that on, I just cried. I thought he didn't forget.
0: No, he didn't. Gary, thank you for sharing a little bit about who you are and, uh, and what you do with us today. Speaking with Gary is also an inspiration. I have enjoyed working with him and getting to know him and I'm glad that I can call him a friend. What he said about friendships at the end is so important. I don't think of us as walking together. We don't think that we have to make a point of listening to each other. We just call each other friends and we are friends. This is likely the one thing that I have learned from being with Gary. Instead of making such an effort to walk together with indigenous people, why don't we just be friends with them? Both Gary and Auntie Debbie have had a long and hard road of discovery and healing. They could have both taken different roads, but they didn't. Perhaps there's a little bit of God's grace in there. Instead, they are walking what Auntie Debbie calls the Good Red Road and are living lives of wholeness and maybe even holiness. They have both influenced and been an inspiration to many young people, and I can say that I can count myself among those whom they have influenced and inspired. To learn more about all indigenous issues, especially as they intersect with the Catholic Church, and for resources, you can visit our website, slmedia.org slash healing. To listen to all our Salt and Light Hour programs, and especially to other Indigenous Voices episodes, visit us at slmedia.org slash podcast. And to watch all the events of the Papal visit to Canada and to read the Holy Father's addresses, go to slmedia.org slash PopeInCanada. I'm Deacon Pedro. Thank you for listening to this special Indigenous Voices edition of the Salt and Light Out.